Well, good morning. Glad to see all of you here today. My name is Chris, and uh, we're in this series called Hello, My Name Is, and we've just been focusing on just relationships, and uh, it's something that uh, every day, every moment of every day, we're interacting with different people, and uh, relationships can give us so much uh, life, but they can also be so very complicated. And if you're a guest with us today, I just want to invite you to go to our website, renaissancechurch.org, click on Messages, and you can watch this entire series and uh, also our previous series. And uh, if you have a smartphone, tablet, you can go to this link right here, renaissancechurch.org forward slash notes, and there you can find our core points, scriptures, illustrations, resources, and we leave that up all week long as, as a resource for, for all of you. Well, uh, last week, we specifically uh, kind of uh, uh, focused on a very specific relationship, and that's marriage. And uh, for all of us, uh, we're somewhere uh, in that scope of probably um, in that uh, focus on that relationship of marriage. And maybe you find yourself in that searching area, searching for the right one, maybe searching uh, a second time. Maybe you're searching within yourself to try to discover if you want to be married. But uh, other than our relationship with God, that marriage relationship is the most critical relationship we have. Well, the next one down the rung is the relationship between parents and their children. And what I understand is all of us are at a different place when it comes to parenting and children today. You know, maybe uh, you're not even thinking about kids and you're sitting there right now going, oh, great, it's on parenting. I don't want kids. They smell and they drool and ah, I don't want that. You know, maybe uh, you're sitting there and you've been trying to have kids and you've gone through years of infertility and you just feel all that emotion well up inside of you right now. And uh, I get that. My wife and I went through seven years of infertility and I, I get all those emotions. And maybe you've just started the parenting journey and you have one, that one little infant. is so cute. And let me just warn you, one day that cute little infant will start talking and we'll start talking back. And we'll start imposing this cute little will upon you. And then parenting shifts. You know, maybe you're just in it. My wife and I, we have 11 and 7-year-old girls. And they're vibrant, strong personalities, which at moments we love. And maybe you just find yourself in that world. Maybe you're coming to that empty nest season. And you're about ready to usher out your last child and you're just, I mean, the clock, I mean, you love them, but the clock can't move fast enough. You're like, freedom! And maybe you've been going through emptiness and you're like, freedom! And then one moves back and you're like, how this doesn't work that way, right? And maybe for you, you're in the grandparenting season. But here's a common place for all of us. Wherever you find yourself in this whole idea of parenting, the common place for every one of us in this room is all of us, all of us, are children, right? Now, in that brief moment, we're all like, oh yeah, we're, we've all been a child at one point in our life. Maybe we're still considered a child to our parents. But in that brief moment, we then all quickly go opposite directions, because every one of us had a much different upbringing. Think back to the very first week of the series. I talked about all the different name tags we wear, and every name tag is associated to a role, and every role has an ideal and a real attached to it. And this is very, very true when it comes to this whole conversation of parenting. If you are a parent, 
you have attached to your role as, as uh, a father or mother uh, an ideal to that, how you want to be as a father and mother. Your kids have attached uh, 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 an ideal to you as a father and mother. Your spouse has attached an ideal. Your parents have attached an ideal. And then there's the real, who you really are. And parenting is one of the most complicated relationships, but one of the most critical relationships that we get to help form. I had a mentor once uh, say to me, he said, Chris, um, parenting doesn't get easier, it gets different. And I tell you, those words have rung true every stage along my girl's development doesn't get easier. It just gets different. And I think about all the things we can read online about parenting. There's always new parenting trends, a new blog post that gets passed around or gets posted on Facebook, a new book written on parenting that gets posted on the New York Times bestsellers list. There's always these parenting trends. And uh, sometimes there's good thoughts within those parenting trends. And sometimes you, it makes you pause and go, really? Someone really believes that or thinks that way? And then someone tells you about it and they believe it as well. And you're like, am I missing something? And so I started to research uh, through all of these parenting trends over the past 100, 200 years. And I found three that uh, are hilarious, but I'm sure that while that parenting trend was going, Many, many, many people believed in it. For instance, in 1849, uh, Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup hit the market. And it was literally dubbed the miracle. Because if you had an infant or a toddler or a small child and they were teething or fussy or uh, had a cold or a cough or just wouldn't go to sleep, you would give them this Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup as the miracle drink to help calm them and put them to sleep. And so for over 60 years, parents used Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup. But it was in 1911 when the American Medical Association put out this publication to help parents. And underneath the section titled Baby Killers, there's a positive section, they listed Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup. Why? Because one of the main ingredients in Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup was morphine. I wonder how many moms and dads were taking a little hit off of the miracle, right? Like, this is good stuff. Parenting trend. Another one in the early 1900s was what was called the Knickerbocker Brace, and it wasn't just for adults. They made a version for kids because the parenting trend was helping kids to stand up properly. The proper posture was important. And what parents knew was that when kids went out on the playground to play, it affected their proper stance. And parents wanted kids to stand up properly. And so the Knickerbocker brace came on the market that literally this entire contraption they had put on their kids so they would, when they would go out to the playground, they literally couldn't bend over. <laughs> Could you imagine all those kids on the playground today? They're like all robots, you know, dancing around. It's a trend. But this is one, this next one, was the one that I literally had to research. And I, I read parts of the U.S. patent because it was so absurd. I'm like, this can't be true. This, I mean, if it's on the internet, it doesn't mean it's always true. But I found the patent. And this 
<laughs> it was called the Kid Kennel. Okay, you can't make this up. In 1922, Emma Reed of Washington filed the patent for the Kid Kennel. And this is what was uh, written in that patent. It is well known that a great many difficulties arise in raising and properly housing babies and small children in crowded cities. That is to say, from the health viewpoint. Her whole premise was that uh, when you're raising kids in crowded cities, they can't get fresh air, and kids need fresh air to develop properly. With these facts in view, it is the purpose of this invention to provide an article of manufacture for babies and young children to be suspended up upon the exterior of a building adjacent an open window wherein the baby or young child may be placed. Okay, I understand that fresh air is important, but when you suspend your child 20 stories up, <laughs> I think one counteracts the other, right? But the patent was filed. It was approved, and they actually manufactured the kid kennel. You know, we look back and we're like, well, that's... Like, who would have done that? That's the thing with trends, they come and go. And not saying that there's not principles you can't hold on to, like the kid kennel. Okay, great. Fresh air is great for your kid, so go down the staircase and take them to a park. But what we know is trends will come and trends will go. And I start looking at parenting, especially when it comes to different cultures, different parts of the country. Because what we all know is there's real tensions that rise up when you're trying to parent your kids and trying to figure out how to parent your kids. And it's easy to grab on a trend that later will be looked at upon as going, really, did I really think that was a good idea? And one of the tensions that I think is so unique to this part of the country, it's been real eye-opening for me as I've spent only a couple years here, uh, specifically in Jersey in the Summit area, is that one of those tensions that's real within parenting is this issue of time. You see, there's difficulties and there's tensions in Las Vegas where I'm from. And they're completely different than here. Not greater than or less than, just completely different. And my wife and I have quickly discovered there's this incredible tension within time and calendars and commitments and things to do. And as I talk with so many of you, it's the same tension. There's not enough time, not enough time, not enough time. Kiera came home this week. Kiera's my oldest. She's 11. She's a sixth grader. And uh, she came home Tuesday night and said, hey, my mom, uh, uh, tomorrow night at, at, at school, they're doing this uh, kind of get-together party. They're going to show the, the movie from what was called Stokes. And Summit, they take all the sixth graders every year to this camp overnight. It's incredible. And so they were kind of doing the, the, the recap party. And Kira's like, I want to go, I want to go. And Kim looked at me and looked at her, and, and uh, I knew our schedule. And Wednesday night was literally the only open night we had all week. And we had to say no. And she's like, oh, but all my friends. And we were like, this is our only free night we had. Tension. There's not enough time way overcommitted, too much pressure at work, kids involved in too many things. So how, 
what do we do with that tension? I read an article this week. It was uh, uh, from the Financial Times. And let me just preface before I get into this article that the viewpoint that this author gives within this article is very um, focused into one specific kind of set of, uh, or one very specific family situation. It's focused on a, a dad working 100 hours, a stay-at-home mom, and their, and their kids. What I know in this room is that might apply to you. Maybe your family context is mom and dad working 100 hours with kids. Maybe you're a single parent working 100 hours with kids. So apply this article to your context because it will apply to your context. Even though her kind of focus is on this husband, stay-at-home mom, husband working 100 hours. So she sets up this whole scenario by talking about uh, the husband working 100 hours. He comes home from a long day at work. He uh, uh, he arrived at home late. He walks in the house. Uh, wife says to him, well, your daughter's upstairs trying to stay awake for you to tuck her in. He makes his way upstairs, grabs a book, sits on the edge of her bed, starts to read the book to her, then his cell phone rings. It's work. So in this brief moment, he apologizes to her. He has to take the phone. He starts to answer it, sets the book down. His daughter screams, you're a terrible dad. And there sets the tension. So she starts making her way through her thought process. And she comes to this point. The problem can be exacerbated because men are often climbing to the peak of their careers during their child's or children's formative years. Instead of family, uh, family life being a rewarding break from the pressures of work, too often it comes a poor second with the result that the family and the career suffers. Does it sound familiar? Career is taken off, more responsibility, more stress, bigger paycheck. The kids are growing. And as kids get older, they need more time from mom and dad. The article goes on. Men rarely seek help for such, such problems early on. They can be unwilling to confront it and may fear that it will be regarded as a weakness and may harm their promotion prospects. Often these problems only present themselves when the individual reaches a crisis point, such as divorce, depressive breakdown, or alcohol misuse. And maybe that's you right now. Maybe you're in the midst of the crisis. Or maybe for you, you see it coming. And it's like a freight train coming at you. You've been trying to balance everything. You're trying to keep every plate spinning and you just see it coming. You see it coming. You see it coming. Many men justify their long work, working hours as wanting to provide the best for the, their fam, families. And that's real. Maybe part of your ideal and real when it comes to father or mother is you look back to how you were raised. And you were were raised with nothing. And your parents scraped by and now you found yourself in a job that if you crank out the hours, if you give your all, you're going to give something better to your kids than you had. It's real. Work, however, offers psychological as well as financial rewards. 
It can be exciting, challenging, and provide satisfaction from a job or deal well done. Family life can feel messier, mundane, and even boring in comparison. And do you feel that tension? You go to work and you're challenged. You go to work, you leverage yourself, you accomplish a lot. You get a pat on the back, a raise, the accolades. You go to work and you can see progress, but you come home and you're just like, wow, I have to sit and I have to listen. Wow, I've said the same thing to my kid over and over and over again. She's not, he's not listening. She goes on, the kinds of problems these men solve at work tend to be practical and tactical and action is rewarded with compensation, professional advancement and praise. However, problems at home are more emotional and listening rather than doing is often the best approach. But then the author, the very end of this article, and you can find this entire article as a PDF on our notes section. The last thing she wrote, the last thing, the thing that shoved me back on my heels, she said, work, no matter how stimulating and rewarding, will never love you back. And we know that intuitively. We know that. Maybe this has happened to you personally, or maybe you've watched this happen to people around you. You give your entire self to a job, to an organization. You leverage all of yourself in a moment. You're tossed out. It's just the fact of the work world. Maybe you've had it happen to you. If you haven't had it happen to you yet, you've seen it happen to people around you. And no matter how much we leverage ourselves in our work, our work will never love us back. It will always take, 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 take. So today we're going to jump in to a few verses found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it's the foundation in which we should build our family. It's the foundation in which we should parent And it's not a parenting trend that comes and goes. This was written thousands of years ago, and it's what God says. Hey, build your foundation, your family, marriage, parenting foundation upon this. So it starts in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And if you're from a Jewish faith, Jewish tradition, uh, or maybe you have friends from the Jewish faith, Jewish tradition. This verse and this set of verses actually um, are very, very, very familiar to you because this is what's called the Shema. In in the Jewish faith, there's actually three different components of the Shema. The first one is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which uh, we're going to be looking at today. The second component is found in Deuteronomy chapter 15, which is uh, simply uh, a set of verses that says God will bless you when you're obedient to him and there's consequences when you're disobedient to him. And the third component of the Shema is found in uh, Numbers chapter 15. And it talks about the prayer shawl and it's all tied back into, the, into God's commands, his law. And we get the word Shema from the Hebrew of De- Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. It reads this. 
Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And that word Shema is translated in English as hear, but in the Hebrew it's more than just hearing or listening. It has this absolute connotation of you will listen to God's words and because it's God, you will apply it to your life. You'll put it into action. You will live out God's words. Because it's easy just to hear and say, that's a good thought, and go on in our day. But Shema says, no, you're not just hearing, you're not just listening, you're placing it into action. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. That word Echad means one. And it's a common meeting place for Christians and Jews. We believe in one God. Now, there's a vast difference because in Christianity, as a Christ follower, I believe the three in one, that it's God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But we believe in one God. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Well, it goes on in verse 5. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And maybe that's a very familiar verse for you, either if you're from a Jewish uh, faith or uh, if you've been coming to Renaissance. We talk a lot about, you know, love God and love your neighbor because this verse is found often in the New Testament. And Jesus says, yeah, love God, love your neighbor. That's why we say love God and love each other, love God and love people, love God and love the everyone. There's this moment in Luke where uh, a Jewish religious leader, an expert of the law, comes to Jesus. And they ask Jesus such an important question. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus was always a master at coming back at a question with a question. So he comes back at this uh, religious ruler, this expert of the law, and he says, well, what does the law say? How do you read it? And this religious leader quotes the Shema. And Jesus simply responds, you've answered correctly. Go and you will have life. You see, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, you know, 4 through 9 isn't just important in the Jewish faith and tradition. It's so important for us as Christ followers. And wherever you find yourself at spiritually, this set of verses is something that you should lean into. Well, it goes on. It says, These commandments that I give you here today are to be on your heart. A better word than commandments, actually that Hebrew word literally means these words. These words. God's words are to be on your heart. And they tie all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Now, if you studied the Ten Commandments, been a part of, uh, of church before, usually the, 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 the rabbi or the priest or the pastor goes to Exodus chapter 20. But there's a second place that the Ten Commandments are found. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So this set of verses, the Shema, comes after Deuteronomy chapter 5, that we get the Ten Commandments as well. And it's saying, guess what? These words or these commandments 
are to be on your hearts. And we think about the Ten Commandments. And most people probably don't know all ten. Maybe you do, but most people don't know all ten. ten. But if you would just ask a simple question, well, out of the Ten Commandments, which ones do you know? And what comes to your mind first? Murder? Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good one, right? Let's not kill each other. Great, like that one. Don't lie, that's another good one. Adultery, uh, it's in there. But what's the first one that God gave? The first one. You shall have no other God before me. It's this powerful statement that God was saying. I want a relationship with you. So many times people feel like God is this judge in the sky with lightning bolts and a hammer, and he's just waiting to cast his wrath down. It's not, it's not the storyline in the Bible. Yes, God will bring his judgment. But the storyline throughout the Bible is God desperately wanting a relationship with us. The creator wanting a relationship with his creation. And that's why the first command is so important. It says, you shall not have any other God before me. Now, thousands of years ago, it was all these different uh, religions with their different idols. And some of those, those cults were really messed up. I mean, they were performing child sacrifices. And if you know any of the history, it's easy to say, well, that was, the, that was those cultures. It's not the same today. You're right. It's not the same today. So what's our... What are our gods today? What do we put in front of God? Our job? Our paycheck? Our kids? Our golf? That's why God said, don't, don't worship anything else. Put me number one. Put me number one. And it starts with us. It's his words upon our hearts. And then, this is what it says. Impress them on your children. That word impress literally means to engrave. And it has this powerful word picture uh, attached to it. It's this image of someone sitting there with a chisel and a mallet on this big uh, piece of stone and they're painstakingly chiseling into that rock face God's words. And as parents, we are to chisel, we are to engrave into our kids the words of God. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes focused energy. When, not if, when we make a mistake, guess what? It's in that rock face. Hit by hit, engraving into our kids God's words. In Proverbs chapter 22, it says that we are to train up our children in the way they should go. And when they get old, they won't turn from it. And it's a powerful moment to realize that we as parents are to engrave, we are to train, we are to raise up our kids 
the words of God upon their hearts. But what's interesting about Proverbs 22, it says when they get old, they won't turn from it. But there's this whole chunk of time in between us engraving into our kids and they become adults and they can start making their own choices. And you can almost just feel that sense of, yeah, when they get old, they'll come back. But there's a chunk of years that they might go their own way. They might make a left-hand turn. They might walk away from God for a period of time. They might become the prodigal son or prodigal daughter. But if you've engraved into them, God's words that are on your heart, they will return. You see a trend that has been going on for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years. Somewhere along the course of time, it went from parents engraving onto their kids God's words to the responsibility of the rabbi or the priest or the pastor to engrave God's words on their kids. And so easy as parents for us just to, to kind of hand that responsibility over to the rabbi or the priest or the pastor and say, oh, wait, you're the experts. So I'll bring my kids to church. I'll sign my kids up for the class. And I'll make sure they go through the class so you can engrave on my kids God's words. And it was never the intention for God, from God. It was always the responsibility of the parents to engrave onto their kids because here's the fact. The question isn't, are we engraving? We are engraving. The question is, what are we engraving upon our kids? We are. So are you engraving God's words that are on your heart, upon your kids? Because that's the foundation. And if your kids are out of the house, or you find yourself as a grandparent, guess what? Still is in your hands. That chisel and that mallet. Well, then it gives us the how. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. As parents, we are to teach our kids and that's wherever we go. When you're awake, right before you go to bed. When you're on the road, when you're traveling, when you're busy, when, the, when, the, when your schedule is out of control, guess what you're doing? You're engraving. What are you engraving? When life calm down, calms down a little bit, guess what? You're engraving. When you're on vacation. I was in uh, Starbucks last week. I was in line for my second venti coffee because one is not enough. And I was standing behind uh, uh, what I assume was a father and a teenage daughter. And I just walked into line and the baristas were a little slow um, and uh, not terribly slow, but they were a little slow. And I'm standing behind them and all of a sudden with this just huff and puff and this loud statement, he just emphatically uh, stated, he goes, I'm tired of incompetent baristas. And he turned around and walked off, right? And then there's this teenage daughter with her head hanging low. You could almost read her mind from her body actions. She just simply turned and slowly walked out of Starbucks. Wherever we go, 
we're engraving. It goes on. Tie them as symbols to your hands and bind them on your foreheads. In the Jewish faith, especially the very conservative uh, Jewish um, faith, uh, you'll see uh, men uh, wearing these wooden boxes on their head or maybe one on their bicep. And over the years, it became that they would write the Shema onto a little piece of paper and they would stick it in these little boxes and you'll see them praying with this box on their head or their forearm. I mean, this literal symbol of them tying it to them. But what the Bible's trying to say is, hey, wherever you go, these words that are on your heart should be talked about. And it says, write them on their door frames of your houses and on your gates. Your whole life should embody God's words. And it's not the church's responsibility. Oh, we have a, we have a part in it. It's not the rabbis or the priests or the pastors. It's you. It's me as a parent to engrave. The end of the song that Ian sang, the words were sobering. It says, and you're so much like me, I'm sorry. See, we all know, whatever the age of your kids are, it happens early. They'll give you a look, they'll respond in a certain way, and you start realizing you're looking in a mirror, right? And as your kids get older, the more and more they start talking and looking like you, not just physically, their actions, their mannerisms. And sometimes you're like, that's awesome, that's my kid. And other times you're like, whose kid's that, right? And if you're in a weak moment, you blame your spouse. Oh, that's you, right? That's horrible. Go listen to last week's message. <laughs> but they become like us. Last week I talked about this triangle where husbands on one side, wives on the other side, and as their relationship grows towards God, they come together. I shared this statistic that, you know, around 50 to 55% of all marriages end in divorce, but couples that go to church regularly, it drops down to 30% get divorced. I mean, that's dramatic just because they're attending church together is my plug to go to church. But it's all about them specifically saying we're going to grow together. Then I had a coffee this week with someone, and we're having this conversation. And they're like, have you ever heard the statistic about couples that pray together? I'm like, no, I've never heard about this. They're like, you need to Google it and, and get the research. But I think it you know, dramatically drops you know, the percentage of, of divorce way down. So I left that coffee, and I went home, and, and I started to find this research. And researchers have found out that when couples pray together, when they pray together, it drops it down to below 1% below 1%. I mean, you could save a lot of money on counseling. Just pray together, right? I mean, and what Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, as husband and wife grow towards God, guess what's happening with their kids? As husband and wife move together in their relationship to God, their children 
It's just going to happen because you're going to start impressing what's going on within your heart, what God's doing inside of you, and you're going to start impressing upon them. Well, in this Financial Times article that I, I read parts of, she, uh, towards the end, says, you know, one of the number one things you need to do is make a plan. So simple, right? In the work business world, we have plans all the time. We have objectives and goals and projects and uh, due dates and milestones, and we have all of that in our work world. Why not have a plan in our family world as well? And I started thinking through that and the tension of time that we all have to navigate through. Well, Urban Meyer uh, was, was a football coach at Florida, and uh, he had this just breakdown where he left coaching for a period of time. And uh, all of it stemmed around time and his family. And so uh, when he started to think about getting back into coaching, he's now Ohio State's coach, they sat down and they worked on a covenant, a plan, a contract together. And this is what they wrote on their contract. And you can just, you can sense, you know, I don't know for sure, but out of these 10 things, you can probably guess which ones his kids were writing and which ones his wife was writing. This was his contract with his family to get back into coaching. One, my family will always come first. Two, I will take care of myself and maintain good health. Three, I'll go on a trip once a year with Nikki, minimum. Four, I'll, I'll not go more than nine hours a day at the office. Five, I will sleep with my cell phone on silent. You can rip some of these off, by the way. Six, I will continue to communicate daily with my kids. Seven, I will trust God's plan and not be over-anxious. Eight, I love this one, I will keep the lake house. <laughs> you can hear his wife. No, really, and we will go to the lake house. Nine, I will find a way to watch Nikki and Gigi play volleyball in 10. I will eat three meals a day. You can find this whole list on our notes section as well because there's some great insights on that list. But here's my challenge for you. First, identify the tensions. Sit down with your spouse. Maybe it's your ex-spouse. And yet, sit down because guess what? If it's a divorce situation, you both are engraving on your kids. Sit down, identify the tensions. If there's problems, solve them. Solve them. But identify the tensions and then come up with a way to, to navigate through the tensions. Number two, develop a plan to manage the tensions. It's what Urban Meyer and his family did. Here's the tensions. There's going to be great work pressure, football season. I'm going to have to leverage a ton of time Recruiting season, a lot of time, but this is what I covenant with you as a family together to manage the tensions in my job. What's the tensions within your job, within your world? And develop a plan and agree to it. And number three, and I think this is the most important, how am I engraving? What am I engraving? What should I be engraving within my kids? Remember, it's not my responsibility as a pastor. It's yours as a parent to engrave upon your kids God's words. My dad grew up in a very dysfunctional family. Because what I know in this room today, many of you look back to your past and you don't have a great model of a family, a great 
model of a father, a mother for you to look back on. And I talk a lot about my relationship with my dad here because it means so much to me. I have a great relationship with my mom as well. Don't get me wrong. My dad grew up in a divorced house. His stepmom looked at him and said, you're not my son. I'll never love you like my son. His dad was a very successful businessman during the day and at night he was a drunk. His real mom I never met because she was verbally and emotionally and physically and sexually abusive. So my dad protected us kids from her. And my dad would bounce between his dad's house and his mom's house. And when he'd be at his mom's house, horrible things happened. She'd have a different guy in the house all the time. You know, one night, this is just one of many stories. He awoke to a 45 to his head with a sergeant screaming at him, making him do push-ups until he puked. That, that was his past. He met my mom. They got married. And when they encountered a relationship with Jesus Christ, it shifted the whole trajectory of their marriage and their life. And my mom and dad together said, we want to have a different family than we had growing up. We want to be a different mom and a different dad than what we had growing up. And it took a lot of effort and a lot of time and God's grace within their lives. But I'm here today because my dad said, I'm going to be different than my dad. And I know for many of you, you look back, and it's so easy to say, well, that's just how I was raised. You can do it different within your kids' lives. And you can choose to get that chisel and that mallet and start engraving God's words that are in your heart upon your kids. You can break the chains of the past. Because what I know is the lyrics to the song I sing is simply, I'm so much like you, Dad, and I'm thankful. And your kids, no matter what their ages are, that can be the song they sing back to you. Not I'm sorry, but thank you. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for today, and I know in this room today, this whole area of parenting wells up so many different emotions from the past and just the current realities. Lord, I just pray that everyone here will just understand the call to be a parent, that we are to impress upon our kids your words. Such a significant responsibility that you have placed in our hands, and may we hold, hold on to it dearly. In your name I pray, amen. God bless. Have an amazing week.